the radical left, the Marxists, the anarchists, the agitators, the looters, and people who, in many instances, have absolutely no clue what they are doing. Welcome to What Radicalized You, a podcast of stories and experiences that have shaped people's ideas about our world and the way society should function. So my name is Evan Casper Futterman. I work in an organization called the Bronx Cooperative Development Initiative. Um, I got my PhD in urban planning and public policy. And the way I think about the moments that radicalize me, I really think about it as like a, like a scaffolding of moments that, that start pretty early on for me, but that were in and of themselves, like individually, not sufficient enough to push me. I often ask people a similar question, like what, what is a moment that you recall? And, and for me, it was like a series of moments, as I'm sure it is for many people. I was raised by by two moms. One of them is my biological mom, the other is my non-biological mom. I wasn't ad- adopted. And I think something that started for me was like a recognition of difference, right? So my family is different from other people's families. And what does that mean? You know, as an early, early on in my childhood age, it was like sort of, you know, four or five years old and like talking about your family and like, what does your mom do? What does your dad do? And like the recognition that my family is different was a moment for me to be like, huh, I answer this question differently from other people. What does that mean for me? What does that mean for my parents? And my parents did this thing with the ACLU when I was like five or six to make my not biological mom the like legal second parent, it was called the second parent adoption. And they were like a a precedent case for this. So they sued New York state to say, Donna, my mom who did not give birth to me was my, also my legal parent should be considered my legal parent for sort of a precursor to marriage, but not yet really about gay marriage. This was like in 1991 or something. So long before gay marriage was really on the national docket. And I think that was really important for me as a young kid, because it was like, so, you know, white, wealthy, not like massively, you know, uh, like owning class, tycoon wealthy, but Upper West Side, own an apartment, you know, a family wealth, professional class family, pushing for this kind of social change is part of a legacy of activism, just as much as a sort of working class legacy of, you know, Stonewall Riot is for gay and lesbians and for the queer, for queer movement generally. And seeing you know, that lens of something isn't right in the world, you have to fight to fix it. And you use this, this is the method you use to address this, you go to court, you sue, you you fight this way, and you win. And so that was like an early lesson to me of like, things aren't right in the world, but you can, you know, make your case and change them and people will hear that and it doesn't fix everything, but you have to keep doing that. And that sort of landed pretty powerfully, I think, in my mind as a young kid, because that turned me, I guess, into what you could say, like, was a liberal as a teenager. I was like, oh, like the world is is messed up. But like, if you make strong arguments, basically, that you can, inter- you know, you can fix things and reason debate. And I had my mind in middle school and high school also sort of melded by deeply, deeply molded as many. And I've since gone back and kind of looked back at this, like deeply molded by the West Wing. And that kind of liberalism was like, this is like good people try hard in the government, fix things, liberalism. And then in starting to get into high school, 
getting a little bit of pushback on that. And definitely into college, I sort of showed up in college being like, I want to work, you know, like I wanted to be like a good liberal. I was like 2004, I like supported John Kerry. You know, so I guess this is now the sort of pre-story to me of like this, this, what I've said so far is like, this is how I became a liberal or like why I was liberal. My parents also had a radical history too. They were in social movement. They were in underground. They, you know, radical feminists, anti-war movement. My mom was in a solidarity delegation to, went to meet with women in Vietnam, you know, in 1975, like a women's anti-war delegation, just so much stuff like that, that they were a part of. They were a part of direct action. They were part of demonstrations. They were part of underground supporting and connecting underground work in their in their time. And then, you know, they were also my parents and they were New York Times readers. And I sort of heard echoes of this in, in my growing up, but then also like, this is how they were then when they raised me. And so I think really for me, it was like a couple of quick hit things that happened in, um, in college then I went I'd studied abroad in Nicaragua and lived in a Sandinista neighborhood as a, you know, study abroad space. And, you know, my homestay, like grandmother, basically auntie, grandma sort of figure was very, very low key, but was like, you know, every now and then would like slip a little bit of a story like, oh, yeah, you know, this is where we used to hide the AK-47 like, under the bed. And like Daniel Ortega, who was like now is still, I don't know, it got sort of messed up legacy in terms of what happened to Sandinistas in more recent era. But like, you know, like was friends with him and like did all this, you know, radical revolutionary stuff. And learning about the history of that it, in a moment when literally like the day I flew and landed in Nicaragua to start this program, was like the day after Katrina made landfall in New Orleans. And so we're like sitting in the living room and I've been taking Spanish and learning Spanish for a while in school. But my, you know, I was there for the first time in a, in a country and like on my own you know, homestay speaking Spanish immersion level experience. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'm like watching this on TV about a place that I've never been. I've never been to Louisiana before, but I know it's the United States and I know about, I know about racism. I know about right, imperialism at this, at this point. And my host mom is like, you know, pointing on the screen and she's like, ¿Por qué todos son negros? Like, why, why is everybody black? on screen, like at the Superdome, basically, right? Why is everybody black? And like, I know why they're all black. I know why they're suffering. But then I'm like, oh, you want me to like talk about this in Spanish, talk about racism, talk about America, talk about, like, it was like a very, like, I still remember it, obviously. This happened in 2005 and I'm still talking about it, but like very iconic for me moment of like, it's so much bigger than government. It's so much bigger than the court system. It's so much bigger than political parties. It's deeply historical, deeply structural, deeply pathological, it, embedded in the in the dirt uh, and the soul of uh, the United States, that this is what we are about, that that moment was, you know, to witness that and then to be witnessing it from a place that had been under, you know, decades of imperial sort of direct and indirect imperialism and neocolonialism was a real flashpoint for me at, I think, 19 to be in that in that space. I then, you know, came back and was still a little bit discordant and kind of in cognitive dissonance. I was still applying for like think tank jobs uh, as I was leaving, ready to get leave college. And my advisor had been trying to push me to think a little bit more coherently about that. Like, I think I applied, I mean, this is embarrassing even to talk about it. I applied to like a job at the Carnegie Endowment or some, you know, really ridiculously imperialist thing to be like my internship after I graduated. And he was like, I think it was, oh my God, it's like something like to work with, you know, some terrible like Negroponte or something like really awful imperialist. 
terrible, terrible person. And he's like, think about like what you have. My advice is this guy, Joe Nevins, who's written a lot about US Mexico and East Timor and genocide and imperialism and everything. And and he was like being really like, but gentle and soft spoken sort of about it to me. Like, you know, think about your experiences in Nicaragua. Like, how would you talk about that with somebody like this? And like, why, why do you want to work with someone like him? Why do you want to do this still? And I was sort of caught in that moment of like, I still crave this kind of validation of mainstream intellectual, like that, you know, validity, like the think tank world. And it's this is where the real people think about things. And then my own experiences, which were shifting and sort of causing this, this chaos and discordancy. And then I ended up, of course, which sort of ended up mattering really more was that I ended up moving to New Orleans in a sort of, I would say, you know, again, like a manifestation. After college, I moved to New Orleans and started working with an organization that grew out of a pretty radical moment in post-Katrina life, which is called Common Ground, Common Ground Collective, Common Ground Relief, which sort of grew out of a, a white, you know, white, black kind of militant anarchist collective organizing in post-Katrina space. It became something completely different afterwards, like really, you know, became this sort of non-classic, non-profit degeneracy story. But it was in that, like I went to New Orleans to sort of do this, to, to respond to this thing was happening and this was my sort of version of but a little bit in a vicarious way like a still manifesting a little bit not a little bit a, a fair amount of this sort of like white savior volunteerism do-gooderism in going down there as many thousands and thousands of white young white people did actually of all races too but particularly white and northern people went to new orleans to like fix right fix things and it was really there i would say that like the the radicalization piece that started kind of germinating from nicaragua and like living with sandinistas pushed to become more grounded in like no this is how you would actually do it in in the u.s like it's not just about like go to go to the global south and like take up arms or like align yourself with third world revolutionaries it was like what do you do in the U.S.? Because our, our program director said something very poignant at the end of the time in Nicaragua. She's like, your voice in the United States, it's the heart of power. It's the heart, it's the belly of the beast, right? Like your U.S. citizens, you have this role, this, this voice in the world to change the United States, to remake or redeem or destroy this entity, this powerful sort of seat of empire. And neocolonialism is this powerful thing. So don't only think that as a result of having this experience in Nicaragua that like it means you have to live in Central America to like be a righteous person. And that really like landed with me powerfully because I thought that was sort of my own sense was like I didn't I wanted to live in the US. I wanted to live at home. I wanted to be among people where I could be you know have an impact and, and really work on things like that from that direction. And so it fit with something I had kind of already been thinking about in terms of what I wanted to do personally. But then I ended up going to New Orleans and doing this sort of white savior thing and I got really pushed in there in that space. There was a, a collective of anti-racist white people, mostly women and gender non-conforming folks that were just like a working group, basically a radicalizing working group. It was sort of an offshoot of the, like a Embraden Catalyst Project and a few other kind of organizations that were embedded in the white volunteer space to do specifically what they did to me, which was one-on-one -on -one and bring people into movement from this kind of gigantic churning space of white escapist volunteerism, you know, weird shit that was going on in New Orleans at the time, which was like vacation slash, you know, fixing things and drinking and partying and really messy. But the movement 
design, the movement goal, was like, pick off as many young white people as you can and move them into anti-racist, you know, movement. And that was what happened to me. I got organized. I got a series of one-on-ones from people intentionally, I learned later, and moved into, you know, learning, listening, and hearing. And it wasn't just other white people. It was also black folks, too. So it was black Southerners who were there uh, and other black revolutionaries and stuff who were there in the post-Katrina moment. And I'm sure they could have, to somebody like me, and I'm sure to many people like me, they could have just said, you know, fuck off, right? You don't belong here. Get Go back, whatever. We don't need you kind of thing. And to some people, that was the message. And, and I think some people heard that. And some people thought that that was rude. And like, you know, they sort of didn't listen in the moment. But this sort of like, you know, why are you here? What is your interest? What are you doing here? Why is it not? What, what's, what makes you different than just somebody who's here to be charitable, right? Like why to discover the self-interest, right? That's sort of part of the one-on-one and the organizing mentality is like, what is, why are you here and why is it? about you in a different way to discover self-interest rather than like this sort of selfless, like I'm doing it for others. Kiese Lehman was my uh, teacher. I took a class on James Baldwin and we read a bunch of stuff and I really landed with the idea of white innocence um, and white self-interest in liberation and collective liberation, which then was sort of re-emphasized and pounded in through the kind of catalyst embedded anti-racist working group of folks in New Orleans. Which is like, it's not about other people. Like you can't sustain movement if about it's like, well, I'm doing this for black people. I'm doing this for indigenous liberation. It's like, no, you have to be invested in your own liberation as well. And it ha- you have to be see the way in which systems of oppression as a white person, white man, white anything, or constrict your humanity. They dehumanize you, not in the same way as they dehumanize people who are oppressed by these systems, but you are, de- you are yourself dehumanized. And to seek liberation from that dehumanization is what it means to be a white anti-racist. And then, you know, getting beyond allyship to conspiratorship, right, is the next step in that. It's like, you don't, you're not just an ally, you're not just like, I support this cause, but it doesn't really affect me. I'm privileged to support these causes. That's sort of like the upper edge of like the liberal, like do-gooderism thing to like complicity in the system. What is your complicity? And also how do your actions dismantle it, you know, individually and collectively. And so that New Orleans thing was absolutely essential to pushing me into what I now consider my work. And I you know, helped co-found with many other people an organization in New York when I got back in 2012, the Cooperative Economics Alliance, which grew out of a collective sort of solidarity economy movement space, a collective called Solidarity NYC, which published this kind of informal movement map when Occupy Wall Street started. It published the map before that and before I was involved in it. Um, while I was still in New Orleans, with map around like, you know, alternatives, alternative economies exist all around us kind of thinking. And it was exactly what happened to me in New Orleans, too, because I was there while public housing was being demolished and, and dismantled with reckless abandon. Public housing, public schooling, uh, public hospitals were being dismantled left and right in the few years after Katrina. And to me, it was like, yes, you know, how do we both essentially the reconstitution of the social contract? It's like, you know, this stuff is being dismantled all around us. What is the new society? What is the different form of society that we rebuild in its place instead of just fighting for the scraps of the New Deal that was, you know, advanced 100 years ago? My work now is embedding in solidarity economy and and systems transformation. And I, I think, you know, for me, one of the most important learnings of this process of radicalization is it's about you know organizations not not just people 
like individual people have radicalized me. I can name a bunch of you know individuals who have pushed me, challenged me, shaped my thinking, and also the fact that there were organizations to do that work all over the place is what movement infrastructure is, and how critical that movement infrastructure was in my my process of radicalization. That it wasn't just a few individuals who like sparked. It was like the idea of broader purpose and being broadly connected to each other and seeing it as a timeless task of, you know, you learn from history and you re, you remake it and you try to refashion it in the present. In terms of what radicalized me, I think there's a bunch of things in there, but specifically, you know, being embedded in movement, I think is what radicalized me was instead of just learning about it and being sort of inspired or learning about history of oppression was to be in the space where I was meeting, learning, talking, acting with people at first in New Orleans and now in New York City, where I'm from, in a bunch of different ways to move and change, you know, hearts and minds and systems and moving, you know, in some ways beyond electoralism, for sure, in many ways, but also not entirely disregarding it either. That's been, I would say, like, the thing that I feel like is still my, like, oh, I'm still like an establishment hack is when I'm like, well, maybe voting isn't like entirely bad, you know, that kind of thing, right? There's like, we have a lot of this kind of... like dissension inside radical politics of like how much does it you know matter to integrate yourself with those systems so i think that 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 is katrina and new orleans was for me the most poignant thing and kind of being embraced and challenged by others other white people but actually everybody investment in in growth and development and in leadership development was foundational for me was essential for me i if people had given up on me or said oh whatever like you know white guy go back you know who cares about you, I think I could have been like a lot of people and been like, oh yeah, these radicals, they, they just like to complain and you know, that kind of thing. And I was successfully brought in and I'm very grateful for it. And now I'm, I'm trying to bring others in. I'm a member of Resource Generation and that also I think has been a really important movement space for me because for two reasons, actually, because it it is, I find it very challenging to be around other people who are wealthier or less wealthy or whatever th- than me in those spaces and how individualistic a lot of people in those spaces can be sometimes, like instead of systemic, like, you know, oh, I'm supposed to give, I'm supposed to be a donor, I'm supposed to do this stuff, as opposed to thinking in terms of acting against systems and what, what the broader role is. And then it also is like extremely important for me to be in that space because it reminds and, and is essential to saying like what, living out the maximum of like what organizing your own people is. Right, it's not just like, yeah, I live and work in the Bronx. I was born in the Bronx, I live and work in the Bronx and like I'm a part of the Bronx and that's my my work. I live and work in New York City. I work in communities of color. I'm a part of an organization that's black led and I'm the only white person on staff. But at the same time, like my social network, my movement role is also to work my own people and discovering how extremely difficult and annoying and frustrating and painful it is to work with other people who have wealth and, you know, empowering and inspiring as well, I think has been also a really important lesson for me in in terms of radicalization is like, when you talk to your own folks, that's where it comes out that, you know, it's like being with family. Like some people drive you absolutely fucking nuts and you're still family. And what are you going to do about it? How are you going to build a relationship and make change? 
because that's the only way that change happens is in is in collective is in is in space with others and you can distance yourself from it but then you will not really as much of an effective change agent and so that's been also i think a really important lesson Thank you.